Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Anxiety Sisters, and welcome to our show. Today, we're a little starstruck. Our guest is someone we really admire and whose work we've been following for many years. She is a licensed therapist specializing in grief counseling, but she's also a wonderful writer of two, three books now, a thorough researcher, a busy mom of three, and an agent of cultural change in the mental health field. Mm -hmm. In other words, our dream life. Exactly. (laughs) Claire Bidwell-Smith lost her mom when she was just 18, and then her dad seven years later. Those experiences of loss and how she worked through them shaped her worldview and her career choice. Her latest book, Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief, is a must-read for all anxiety sisters. In fact, for all humans, because we all experience profound loss and the anxiety that goes along with it. And we just feel so lucky to have her with us here today to share her expertise. She's also with her five-month-old little baby. So if you hear him, he has a lot to say also. (laughs) So welcome, Claire. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, that's my baby making some crinkle noises over here. We're going to both be joining you today. I am... I've somehow had a book or had a baby for each book I've written. And I was definitely planning on this third book, but the baby was a little bit of a surprise. And so they they came out at the same time. (laughs) uh, So I've been juggling both. And so here we are. Happy both are here. Both very good additions to the world. Yeah. Thank you. We've read your memoir. We've been following you about losing both your parents and the aftermath of those traumas. And so we just wanted to hear a little bit about your own personal journey with grief and anxiety. Sure. Um, Like you mentioned, my mom died when I was 18 and my father when I was 25. Um, I'm an only child and they both got cancer at the same time when I was 14. So perfect recipe for anxiety, right? (laughs) Um, Absolutely. it was a lot. It was a lot to be going through at that age. It was a lot to be going through when my peers were kind of going through a more normal, traditional adolescence. My my mother's cancer was much worse than my father's. And um, yet at the same time, she was really kind of unable to face it in a lot of ways. And that meant that I was not facing it and we weren't really talking about it. And we um, didn't really prepare for her death emotionally. We didn't say goodbye. Um, and when she died, even though she had been very sick for several years, it just, you know, it just took me by surprise. I never thought she would actually die. Um, and that was really around the time that my anxiety started. Um, and then my father's death seven years later, and then I was 25 and very much alone in the world with a lot of awareness about death and the precariousness of our time here. So yeah, is that funny? (laughs) My babe thinks that's funny, but that's because he's new. So I know that I was actually a young child. I was five when my father first got very, very ill and he died in my twenties. Um, and my mom died in my thirties. But one of the things that I always think about is a lot of the anxiety also came from my father was ill for such a long time and went through so many times in and out of the hospital and, and some gruesome medical procedures. Mm-hmm. And so I always think that also 
even before the loss, left me with so much anxiety too. Almost. Definitely. It puts you into that kind of hypervigilant state, right? Where you can't seem to rest. You can't seem to feel like everything's okay because you feel like there's the shoe's going to drop at any moment. Right. There's always an emergency on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And once you get into that state, I mean, this is the thing that's insidious about anxiety. Once you kind of get into that state, it's pretty hard to get out of it unless you do some real work around it. Your brain just starts to exist in this anxious, hypervigilant state where you're always trying to prepare yourself for the, the next worst case scenario. Yeah, that's interesting. Many, many members of our community ask us about anxiety that accompanies grief, mm-hmm. which is, as you know, so common. In fact, grief-induced anxiety is such a universal experience that the main premise of your new book is that anxiety should be recognized as a real stage in the grieving process. Um, and, and you talk a lot about the, the process originally conceived by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I love her. I mean, she pioneered the grief and bereavement and death and dying world. Um, but you know, this was also seven, no, 60, 50 years ago. Now she was writing and talking back in the 1960s and she was a physician in a hospital in Chicago. And she was at first really looking at the experience of people who were dying. And she came up with the five stages to apply to that. And when you look at the five stages in relation to people who are dying, not grieving, Um, They make a lot of sense, right? Someone who's given a terminal diagnosis goes through denial, then some anger, then they start to bargain with their physicians themselves, their higher powers. Then they kind of slump into a depression as they begin to really face it. And then they come around to a level of acceptance that this is happening. That makes a lot of sense. But the five stages were so, um, people just really soaked them up. They were very excited about them to have this framework and these guideposts that they were then kind of applied to the grieving process. But in my opinion, they don't work as well. And there's just not a perfect linear formula for grief like there can be in some ways for dying. My colleague and friend, um, Hope Edelman, who wrote Motherless Daughters, she, she likes to talk about how people love the five stages for grief because we would love for there to be this perfect formula. Grief is so uncomfortable. It's so painful. And so I think that we, we look for something. We look for something like, oh, if I just go through these five stages, I'll be done. I'll be out of this. I'll feel I was better. Say that there's an end in sight if you can right. just get to acceptance, which we all know with grief, there really isn't an end. Right. So I've been kind of playing with the five stages and talking about them and writing about them for a long time. And one of the things that in my own experience of grieving was I I had a lot of anxiety and I just thought there was something wrong with me. I thought I was doing it wrong, you know, like everybody else was okay. Um, And then I, I had this thing going wrong with the anxiety. But then as I began to work in the field of bereavement, I started to see it everywhere. So many clients were coming to me with anxiety after a major loss. And so I started to kind of study it and research it more. And there was nothing out there written about this connection between grief and anxiety. And so I started to write about it because I think it's a really important part of it that needs to be recognized because a lot of people are suffering from it. It's so important. I know that my panic attacks started six months after my father had died. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I, I obviously knew that I was grieving, but putting together the panic attacks and the grief, it took me a long time to understand the connection. Mm-hmm. Um, And we get questions from our anxiety sisters, from our community all the time that say, you know, I'm feeling so much anxiety. My mom just died or my sister just died or my husband, I mean, you know, whomever. And because not very much has been written about the connection between anxiety and grief, they're wondering if that's normal. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And so what we love so much about your new book is that it completely normalizes the experience of anxiety with grief. Yeah, I really do think it's normal. And I think it's been out there for a long time, but we're really talking about anxiety in a new way in the, in the recent decades, just in, just in the recent last 10, 15 years, it's become more prevalent than ever. Um, and, and, and a new dialogue has opened up about it, but I think that anxiety has always been a part of grief. I mean, if you look back at CS Lewis, he has that great quote that says, I never knew that grief would feel so much like fear or something like that. I think just in this society in general, we really don't talk about dying or about grief. It's still whitewashed, you know, in our culture. It's like you have a certain amount of time you're allowed to grieve and then you should be over it. Think about bereavement leave is three days in many cases. I mean, three days for a family member. No, it's true. We really, we don't have a good language for, for grief in this, in this country or this culture. Maria Shriver says we are a grief illiterate country, um, which I think is really apt. Um, and I think, you know, I think people are afraid. They're afraid to talk about it. Whenever you meet someone who's been through their own grief, you know, they always, they're, they're always much more willing to kind of enter into that space or to recognize what is needed in the time of grief. But for people who have never really been through it, they shy away from it. And it's, partly out of fear, but partly out of this, this kind of overall message that we don't talk about it in this country. And it's different in other cultures. I mean, in a lot of the Eastern cultures, death is a very much a part of their everyday vocabulary and life. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the response is different. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking also about Indian culture. Um, I have some Indian friends who, who we've talked about this a lot, and they, they tell me that, you know, death is thought of so differently in India than it is here. Right. It really is. And, and it's just thought of as more of a part of life that we face, we embrace, we have rituals around and customs around. Mm-hmm. But here it is. It's very kind of tidied up and, and put away, especially after three days for bereavement leave, which is crazy. I always think bereavement leave should come later, like around the three or six month mark. Yes. Because I think there's yes. something that's really hard around that time period. In the beginning, everybody's around and they're helping and kind of, there's lots of activity right after you lose someone. And then later on in the process, it's kind of everyone disappears and you're feeling so alone and really, really facing the loss in a new way. And I think that's when you should be able to get some time off work. We agree a hundred percent. So I don't know if this will be physically possible for you at the moment, but there is a really great section of your book's introduction that we'd love if you would read for us. But if you want to come back to it at a time when you can sit, that's fine. Or you're walking around. <laughs> I am walking around with this guy. Let's see what I can do. My mother's death rocked me. I was absolutely floored by it. Nothing could have prepared me for it. Not the five years we'd spent helping her combat her illness. Not the talks my father had with me about her potential demise. Not the school guidance counselor's sessions. The truth was, I never believed she would actually die. Because mothers don't die. Bad things don't actually happen. I now understand that the dismantling of those beliefs became the catalyst for my anxiety. When my mother's death disproved those two beliefs I'd so fervently held onto, the whole floor dropped out. If my mother could die... Anything, absolutely anything could happen. I have chills right now that really spoke to both of us in terms of one of the causes of anxiety when you experience loss. Mm -hmm. It's just that notion that, oh my God, this can happen. Yeah, it's amazing this kind of how we come into the world and we, I mean, hopefully have a really safe, protective entry into the world. And then we kind of 
go along through our lives believing that everything's fine and we have these plans and we're going to move forward and we're safe. And then something like this happens and you start to realize that life can change at any moment and that um, it's just you can never quite be prepared for it. And that just right there is very anxiety provoking. I think that that a lot of our listeners um, have written to us about that very feeling of sort of like the floor dropping out mm-hmm. and that being one of the primary causes of the anxiety that then follows. It really is. You know, I think it's the root of it. I think that we live under a lot of false illusions in our lifetime and they serve their purpose. I mean, we don't want to go around thinking that we could die at any second, even though we could, it's a tough way to live. Um, and so before we actually experience death or a traumatic event, I think we really are under this illusion that everything will go as planned. You know, we will live into ripe old age. We will see our grandchildren graduate college, you know, whatnot. We'll go on that vacation. We'll maybe have time to lose that 20 pounds after all one of these years, all those things that we're kind of planning for. And we imagine we'll, we'll have time for, and then something happens, even the long illness and death of a loved one, it doesn't have to be a sudden thing, but the, the, the reality of it, the truth of it, when it really happens, it proves to us that, that things do happen. People die, life changes. We are not in control of it. Mm. And when we're really hit with that realization, it can be just very dizzying and it can cause a lot of fear, you know, and it can make you realize that all kinds of other things could happen. The answer is that there's a balance to be found, you know, between trying to face reality and death a little bit more and yet not, not live a very negative pessimistic life. I, I just came from career day at my fourth grade daughter's school and she begged me not to talk about death when I came into her. <laughs> she, was like, she was so embarrassed at the idea. She was like, can you please just talk about your books? And what was interesting to me was that, you know, it starts at such an early age, like, let's not talk about death. Let's not talk about this heavy, taboo, weird, scary thing, right? So it's it's so early on in us that we don't face it and we don't talk about it. And I think that we go along like that and our whole culture kind of goes along like that. And then we get hit with it and it's so surprising and scary and we don't know where to turn. I think that's true. And it goes back to what we were saying about, uh, I think when you quoted Maria Shriver saying that we are illiterate when it comes to- A grief illiterate nation. Yeah, a grief yeah. illiterate nation. I think that's part of it is that we don't even have really good vocabulary for processing it out loud. Mm-hmm. I know we really don't. Which is why grief counselors are so, so important because part of what you do is help people to develop a vocabulary around it. I do, but it's so often after the fact, right? So right. I feel like a lot of my work that I'm trying to do as a writer and as someone who works in the field of death and dying, is just try to bring it more into the mainstream and help people talk about it a little more. So what we love so much about your new book is that it's part explanation part storytelling, both your story and other other people you've interviewed, and then part grief counseling. And that actually took me by surprise because I did not realize until I read your book that I was still pretty deep in grief over my grandmother who died in 2011. So I just decided to do one of the exercises. You have, you have many great exercises in your book, but there was one that really, really spoke to me. And it was that uh, you suggested that someone can write a letter to their loved one this is my favorite exercise. I have everybody do this one. Mm. I got to tell you, it, it's changed me. I mean, it was such a powerful thing because even though I carry my grandmother with me everywhere, I mean, I talk to her, she's still very much part of my life. Writing to her like that was, was I can't explain it, was freeing. 
Yeah, was, there's something really different about it. Um, there's something different than talking to them in our heads or out loud about them or to a therapist. When you sit down and you really write like dear grandma or dear mom or whoever it is, um, there's something very powerful that happens there. There's an aspect of it that's I'm not able to explain. And then in other ways, I think it makes perfect sense because writing is such a powerful tool. It is. And, and one of the things that you say in your book that I think is really true is that keeping your loved one in your life, even after you, even after they're gone is really an important part of the grieving process and, and helping you to move forward is if you can move forward with that person. It's so important. And I think for a long time in the grief world, in the last century, there was a big emphasis on letting go. You lost somebody and the idea was that you needed to move on. You needed to pack up all their stuff. You needed to get remarried if your spouse died or have another kid if you lost a kid or whatever it was, you know, like just keep moving forward and, and, and let go. And we've really come around to realizing that that doesn't quite work as we all know. Um, and what we really need to do is find ways to stay connected to those people that we've lost, that we love. Yeah. My, my mom lost her mother in the 19, probably the late 1940s. And she was, my mom was about the age, she was about 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. And she told me that the next day, like the woman in the neighborhood came in, took all of her mom's clothing, pictures, everything stories kill me uh, of course losing your mother at that age is going to be a, a big theme but that was sort of that loss and that grief process was definitely the dominant theme of my mother's life in so many ways mm-hmm. um and and you know when she had to go through a grief process with my father with her husband it just it just kicked in all those like she was grieving two two people at once but one had died many 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 years before it sounds like she was denied the chance to grieve, but also that at that age, you can't quite developmentally fully grieve, you know, when you're an adolescent or a teenager. A lot of the people I work with who lost a parent in childhood or adolescence come to see me in their 30s and 40s and really have some, really have some grief work to do because they're now able to fully step into their grief in a way that they weren't able to when they were younger. We have a lot of anxiety sisters and brothers who write to us about feeling stuck in their mm-hmm. lives and ang- like with anxiety as well. Like they, they're feeling a lot of anxiety and they're also feeling really stuck. And so then as we communicate with them, we find out that they, you know, that there was been a loss that they ended up suppressing mm-hmm. the grieving process. And as we know, when you suppress anxiety or you suppress grief, it just makes it worse. I mean, it, it does, does. It's, you know, it really holding it down is not the way to do it. Yeah. I found, you know, in the, when I was figuring out how to kind of move through this grief related anxiety there, if you look at the book, it's designed that you really kind of, I ask the readers and my clients to step into their grief before we even get to the anxiety, because a lot of it is about this congested grief that they didn't sort through things that they felt that they, um, guilt or anger or some kind of unresolved issues that they haven't worked through and they can't quite get to the anxiety yet until they've, until they've moved through some of that grief. So the first thing I always ask people is to really kind of look at their grief process and see where they are still grieving that needs to be done. It's amazing how, how many people have anxiety and don't ever talk about it. 
um, and they're afraid to talk about it or they think that there's something wrong with them because of it. And so many people have it. It's an interesting one because you can really hide anxiety, I think, pretty well. Not always, not everybody, but a lot of anxiety you can hide. You know, most people wouldn't know. Absolutely. Um, I suffered anxiety for years and I didn't talk about it either. And, and nobody would have guessed it. I come across as very calm and collected. Inside, I was just utter anxiety. Well, I think it's it's similar to the grief journey, the anxiety journey in certain ways, in that sometimes we don't even know what's happening to us. Mm-hmm. Like we're having all these feelings and all of these things are happening. And we even have a hard time tying it back to, well, I'm in a state of grief or this is actually anxiety. It's mm-hmm. sort of like we don't like Abby said, we don't have a vocabulary. So sometimes we don't know what is going on. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think that's that vulnerability piece too. You know, we really want to be strong. We want to be put together. So it's, it's hard for us to admit even to ourselves when we're struggling. We, we often talk about riding the wave of anxiety, sort of letting it take you till it releases you. Mm-hmm. And you talk about, you sort of had a metaphor about an icy road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that metaphor. A therapist talk to me about that really early on in my life, about this idea that when you're skidding out on an icy road, you know, we all know that we're supposed to turn into the the, the turn, the, the skid right. rather than turn out of it. If we turn right. out of it, the car is going to go even more out of control. We have to turn into the skid. And I think, I think anxiety and grief are actually the same. You need to lean into them. Um, they're here for a reason. You know, there's, there's, there's aspects of it that are calling out to be dealt with. And I think that leaning into them always helps actually reduce them, address them, help us move through them. When we try to resist them and turn away from anxiety, it just gets worse, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's what, yes. And yet it's so counterintuitive. So many of our anxiety sisters say, what do you mean lean into it? I know. Oh, all I want to do is stop it. How do you stop it? And you know, Maggie and I always say to people, well, <laughs> you have to ride the wave. We can try to make it a little more comfortable. We can mm-hmm. try to come up with strategies and things to do to distract you a bit or to help you process it. But if your goal is to suppress it or if your goal is to stop it, it's going to make it worse. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that anxiety is so insidious, right? You can get, once you've developed a certain level of anxiety, you then can become anxious about your anxiety. Oh, absolutely. And you just get anxious about having a panic attack or becoming anxious in a situation. And then you're just worrying about getting anxious. And I think really like in some ways, leaning into that anxiety, kind of making friends with it in some ways, you have to take away the power of it, you know? Yeah. We often say it's like if you're out and there's a riptide, you're swimming in the ocean and there's a riptide, no matter how good a swimmer you are, you're not going to make it back to shore. Mm-hmm. You at least have to be willing to kind of go parallel. Absolutely. You, can't, you cannot fight a riptide. can't happen. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we look at that because a lot of people also with grief call, will write us and say, how long will I feel bad for? Mm-hmm. You know, like what, what's the time? It's been three years. Everybody five wants years. I think that's why everybody loves the five stages so much because they, they present this offer of, you know, the potential that you can just go through these five stages and be done. Right. <laughs> and it's really, it's very misleading. Um, right. But people cling to them because they they hope that, that that would be the case. They could just get through that and be finished with them. But yeah, I think anxiety always has something really interesting to teach us. If we can slow down enough and step through the fear of it enough, I think we get to a really interesting place where it's usually asking something of us. It's asking us to address a certain part of our life or look at something, or even if it's just pretty general anxiety, we can learn so much by 
becoming familiar with our thoughts and how they work and getting into meditation and mindfulness and cognitive work that um, I think that we can really grow as, as individuals when we, when we tackle our anxiety. Definitely. I mean, one of, one of the things that we get a lot of questions about is death of a child, like people who have lost a child write mm-hmm. to us a lot. And I was saying to Abby that for some reason, it always feels a little bit different when people have lost a child. Um, Maybe because, you know, we all know that we will probably at one point or another lose our parents if we haven't already, Mm -hmm. even a spouse. But somehow when people are losing a child, there's there's so many layers of grief in there. Mm -hmm. I just was wondering if you could speak to that. I hate to quantify or categorize grief, but I I do think that losing a child is really the worst one. You know, yes. I think that we are not supposed to outlive our children. Um, that there's right. this innocence of children too; they haven't even made it to adulthood. You know, there's just so much there, and to lose a child is just horrific. It's just I mean, sometimes there are adult children that are lost too, and mm-hmm. but it's it's this. I think it's like this incredible grief coupled with sometimes a lot of shame, depending on what happened. And a lot of judgment. Blame, I've heard a lot of blame. Of course, you know, we're we're their caregivers. It's, you know, we're supposed to be keeping them safe and even into adulthood. And so I think we always kind of take some responsibility for it, even if it's illogical, you know, even if there's a way we could have prevented it. Um, I think just that natural sense of being the protector and caregiver for our children is there. Um, and it and it really is. I think it leads to so much anxiety as well because it, again, it's like the, the worst thing that could happen, you know. So mm-hmm. I think that that again, proving that terrible things can happen, just make you feel like, well, what else is going to happen? How do you work with that when it's the loss of a child? I think there's a lot of deep grief there. I think um, not that any of us get over our loss, but that's one that you will always live with. Like you will go through the mm-hmm. your entire life, you know, always really feeling that grief and missing that your child and, and wishing they were here. And I think that a lot of that work has to do with helping the person really learn to live with that grief, you know, to learn to live in their life and have two things be true, you know, always be sad that they're gone and also still create a meaningful life for themselves, you know, continue to live their own life while holding that sadness. And I think always the answer with that is finding communities of other people who understand, you know, I think it's so great for grief as is as just connecting with other parents who've lost children, other kinds of grief communities, um, and eradicating that shame within your circle, at least, you know, and for yourself. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things I think about guilt and shame, though, that I see a lot in grief is I feel like some people, and this is not always the case, there are definitely cases where people feel shame for more valid reasons, but I think some people hold on to guilt and shame as a way of kind of trying to hold on to their person or their grief. Like yes. they feel like they're trying to atone for something and that if they were to let go of that shame or guilt, then they would be letting go of their person or they would be not honoring them or something. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting thing that happens there. So I try to work with people on how do you stay connected to your person that you've lost? How do you honor them while at the same time releasing your guilt or shame, you know? Um, yes. finding, finding ways to do that without, without it involving guilt and shame, because otherwise I see people hold on to it for years. Um, you know, I wasn't there the night my mother died. I, I didn't make it in time and I kind of chose not to. Um, and it ate me up for years. I mean, it just crushed me that I had not been there when she died. And, um, so for years I wrote her letters, just trying to apologize and tell her about it. And it, and it really helped to kind of mm-hmm. say it, even though I wasn't sure if she could actually hear it or 
what any of that meant. It, I, all of that was living inside of me and I needed to, I needed to get it out. So writing, writing letters to her was really helpful. What something that I feel is that reading books about loss can also really help. I, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I'm a reader, and so that that really helps me. Um, it's a powerful tool, and um, partially because the sharing of stories tends to normalize the experience of grief more. Maybe you know, it also would combat the cultural expectations which create the anxiety. Um, I was just wondering if you could share with our listeners some of your favorite books or memoirs about loss. Yeah, there are so many great ones these days. Um, when my mom died, I I wasn't in any therapy. I didn't know anybody who'd been through loss, and I read every book I could get my hands on about many anything grief related, but also just anything someone had been through that was difficult and that they came through on the other side. And it helped me feel much less alone. Um, there's lots of great parent loss memoirs out there. Cheryl Strayed's Wild is great. Um, oh, I love Krista Paravani wrote a really beautiful memoir called Her about the death of her twin sister. Um, mm-hmm. Emily Rapp wrote a beautiful book called The Still Point of the Turning World about the death of her child. Um, mm-hmm. Suki Forbes wrote a book about losing a child as well called The Angel in My Pocket. That one's really beautiful. There's so, so many. Um, and they're always coming out. There's always new ones. Nora, Nora uh, what is it? Yeah. Nora, I always think Nora Borealis. That's, That's what we call her too. Yeah. She's got so much great stuff about widowhood. I'm actually going yeah. to see her Thursday night. Oh, great. She's, she's wonderful. Yeah, those are some great ones. Oh, Tembi Locke just had a beautiful book come out about losing her husband. Nora's um, book is called No Happy Endings. No Happy Endings. And then she's got like the Dead Widows Club or something. Yeah, the Hot, yeah. the hot the Young hot, Widows Club. The Hot Young Widows Club. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's so many books out there and they can really help a person feel much less alone in their experience. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend reading grief memoirs or anything that kind of um, relates, you know? Yes. Yes. We're, we're big believers in sharing stories and learning from each other's journeys. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you guys are doing the work that you're doing. I think talking about anxiety and talking about all this stuff is really helpful. If someone wanted to find a grief counselor to go to, um, what, what would you suggest? Like how, how, because I, I do know that from my own experiences, a lot of therapists are wonderful therapists for many things, but when it comes to grief, they also don't have the tools and the vocabulary. I know it's Um, tricky. It's It's very tricky. So how does, how does someone go about getting the help that they need? I, wherever you are, I would Google grief counselor in you know Santa Fe or wherever it is that you live and see what pops up there. Um, otherwise, I would look for grief centers there. They always have people that really know what they're doing. Um, Psychology Today is the, the great resource online for finding therapists, um, any therapist, anywhere you can plug in grief and see who pops up. Um, but not everybody's going to be great at it. I really think that grief is such a particular experience that I really believe that it's more helpful if the therapist has been through their own grief um, mm-hmm. on some level, because it's so hard to understand if you haven't, um, or at least very well trained in it. And even then it's like book smart about grief isn't, doesn't translate as well. I think that's true for anxiety as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so too. You know, like my husband has zero anxiety. He's a very pragmatic person. And whenever I talk to him about anxiety or my anxiety, he just looks at me like he doesn't like I'm, a, I'm from a different planet, you know, he's like, why would you worry about that? And I'm like, what do you mean? Of course I'm worried about this. He's like, and we're always like, why wouldn't you worry about that? 
<laughs> yeah, I definitely think it's helpful to find somebody who gets why anxiety happens and how, what it feels like. Yeah. Um, it's funny because although Maggie and I have all the graduate degrees and the credentials and everything, what people care most about is that we are both anxiety sufferers. Yeah. Same here with my grief. You know, I mean, that's why people flock to me is because they know I've really been through it mm-hmm. um, and it makes them feel so much better. Like they, they know I'm really going to understand their their experience. And I don't know if you, I don't know, cause you, you wrote your memoir when you were younger. I, it's such a wise memoir. I really recommend it's called the rules of inheritance. And it's really an amazing book, particularly since you wrote it when you were so young. And I, I can't imagine you really could understand the impact that book would have on grieving people. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just, I knew from all the books I had read that had been helpful to me, I knew that what would be most helpful is if I just wrote my experience as honestly as I could. But I have to say, you are so brave in that story because you share everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I mean, that's one of the more raw memoirs I've read. And I say that as a real compliment. Thank you. That you don't hide anything. You don't sugarcoat anything. You say how you feel and how you felt. And that's so valuable. Yeah, I think those were some of the, you know, I wrote about some of the really shameful moments, the things I regretted saying or doing or not doing. And um, I think those are the things that are most human and that most people relate to. I had been in hospice for a few years when I wrote that book. And I knew that, you know, we're all human and no one, make, no one has some perfect ending, you know, with everybody. So the things that were most relatable were the mistakes and um, letting people kind of know they weren't alone in their own mistakes and questions. But what I found so interesting, particularly about your experience, is how how the the loss of your mom, but oh, also of your father, but the loss particularly of your mom, really informed so many choices that you made for so many years. And Still does. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And I and I think that for our listeners, I mean, that's really a powerful message to digest because it, if one recognizes that that is the part of the process of grief, then I think it will, it it can help. It can go a long way in stopping people from feeling badly about holding on. Absolutely. That's part of of it is that your mom's still with you in very real ways. She is. And I I think that there's some really new, interesting work that's that's happening in the world about talking about like kind of the long arc of grief and how mm-hmm. how much a loss affects us through our whole lifetime. We're not necessarily grieving our whole lifetime, but we are affected by that loss. Our choices, our relationships, our career paths, our life, you know, our resources, all kinds of things are affected by by loss and it goes on for years to come. And you and have I daughters think, now, right? You have you have daughters? I have two daughters and a little baby son. Um my my oldest daughter is turning 10 soon. So I've been a mom for 10 years. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that the the experience of parenting has totally been shaped by your experience with your mom. Yeah. The moment I I gave birth to my first daughter, I I realized why I was still sad and still missed my mother. You know, I I realized how profound this relationship was, you know, this person Mm -hmm. came out of my body and I held her in my arms and I felt more love for her than I'd ever experienced. And I realized, oh, this was what I had with my mom. And this is why I miss her. This makes sense. You know? Right. And you want to share that piece with her. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, I know my mom who lost her mother at like 12 or 13 and wasn't, as I said, wasn't given that chance to grieve. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she she carried that with her. And it's not a thing where it's every day or every minute, but she carried that with her so deeply the rest of her life. And then when she was faced with the loss of her husband, with that like 
that grief, it all was entangled together. Oh, absolutely. 100%. I went through a divorce a few years ago and all of my grief and loss from my parents came rushing back as well. You know, the dismantling of my little family and, and it just brought back so much of, so much of everything, my whole life path and the losses I've had and not having parents now. And it's, it is something that really stays with you. Mm-hmm. So I, the last question that, um, that I'll throw at you is, do you have a favorite strategy, particularly for anxiety? Maybe something that you like that, that you've used yourself, um, as a way of either soothing yourself or managing a moment of, of acute anxiety, anything you can think of that you'd like to share with our, with our people. There's so many different kinds of anxiety and ways to tackle it. I have lots of favorite things, but one of the, one of the ways my anxiety has always manifested is, um, worrying that I'm going to get sick and die like my parents did. Mm. Um, and I'll find myself spinning out in some fantasy all of a sudden where I'm, you know, I'll get a pain in my side. And before I know it, I'm in the hospital bed in my imagination saying goodbye to my kids and I'm getting anxious going through all this. And one of my favorite things to do is to stop myself once I realize I'm in that space and make myself imagine the opposite um, and make myself do it with as much kind of visceral detail as I had been in the hospital bed scene. So I'll imagine myself 30 years from now at my daughter's wedding. I'm healthy. Everybody's doing great. Um, And really try to immerse myself in some positive thoughts and some less anxious thoughts and just kind of reverse that. And it's been helpful. It's calmed me down because that's such a spiral, right? I would, I would have that pain in my side. And before I knew it, I was in my head in the hospital bed and then my body would react and I would start having the physical anxiety symptoms, (laughs) which would carry on through my day, you know, and affect decisions and habits and, um, Maggie and I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) We've never catastrophized a physical symptom. (laughs) So for me to kind of stop and pause and recognize that I'm having an anxious moment and that I'm in this fantasy and then to calm myself down out of it, to kind of go into a different one has been really helpful. We don't, we spend so much time thinking about negative things. We rarely let ourselves really fantasize and go into positive scenarios. Um, And when I've done that, the more I've done it, it's taken away some of the power of the anxious thought. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a really, really great tip. I think that, that a lot of people can use that one. Good. I hope so. I, I can use that one. <laughs> yeah. Try it out. It's great. <laughs> I'm always looking for tips. <laughs> well, we just want to thank you so much for squeezing us in on your very busy schedule. And thank you for sharing your son with us. Yeah. <laughs> on the podcast. And um, we really, really commend the work you're doing. We think it's so needed, so important. And uh, we hope our listeners will go out and read your books. Claire Bidwell Smith. She's really, truly a wonderful human being. And we really need you in this world. Thank you for what you did. And also, also when you know someone who's grieving, someone did this with me. They, they handed me a book that was meaningful to them. And that really meant something special to me. Yeah, rather than just the words, you know, they handed me a book on grief. So we want to thank you. Oh, thank you guys. I really appreciate the work that you guys do. Thank you. Thank you. So we have this e-course, which is a lot like our live workshops in the sense that um, it's an intimate group. We keep the class size small, a lot of one-on-one interaction. It's a five-week at-your-own-pace online course, so you don't have to leave your living room. You don't even have to wear clothes. And what we do in these five weeks is teach you how to manage the anxiety that you can control. 
Right. And the anxiety that is really overtaking you. Exactly. So we, we have more than 17 strategies and techniques and we do, uh, we teach you how to build a meditation practice. Mm -hmm. We have a live call. There's all kinds of stuff. So if that sounds interesting to you, then check out our website, uh, click on e-course and you can learn more about it. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. As always, if you have feedback, especially compliments, <laughs> questions, or an idea for a podcast, please email us. And if you are enjoying our podcast, we would so, 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 so appreciate you leaving a review on SoundCloud or iTunes so we can get the word out to more anxiety sisters. That's right. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety, anxiety sisters, sisters don't go it alone. alone. You're listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.